Philippians is our book. Your journals are open. Let me see if I can help you um, think in the general direction of where this text is headed. Set the framework for you a little bit. A few weeks ago, we were pretty much all aware and saddened by the tragedy that occurred with Ocean Gate's submarine, the Titan. And its passengers took a voyage to see the wreckage of the Titanic. And at some point in that journey downward, from what we know, that vessel imploded and everyone lost their life. From my conversations around the water cooler, the copier, around the dinner table, this was the general question people were asking. Would you take that risk? Because beyond the mechanics, the sadness, the surroundings of the event, people put themselves in this situation and wondered, would I get into that vessel and take that voyage and take that risk? That's the word I want you to think about this morning. It does emerge from our text as a key word. And I want us to see an example of someone. He's the fourth example of selflessness in this chapter. I want you to see the example of someone who was willing to say yes to risk, but not just for the work of man or exploring something horizontal. He was willing to take a risk for the work of Christ. That's what our text explicitly says. So let's investigate it further together, shall we? Philippians chapter 2, I'll begin reading in verse 25. This man's name is Epaphroditus. Say it with me. Epaphroditus. He's the fourth example of selflessness in this chapter. Jesus being the first, Paul the second, Timothy the third. And now to close out the chapter, the final six verses, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes to us about one of his companions named Epaphroditus, and shows us a good bit about the risky business of selflessness. Follow along with me. I'll begin in verse 25. But I considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus. Now notice there's some similarities here between 25 and verse 19. Paul is doing some sending in both paragraphs. The first one, of course, is Timothy. But notice the difference is he's hoping to send Timothy he probably will only send Timothy if he can't go. But here, he's determined to send Epaphroditus. The word is necessary. So it's a little elevated, heightened sense of importance. And he's saying, this is a, a must-do situation. I'm going to send Epaphroditus. And he describes him as his brother, his co-worker, his fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my need, that phrase lets us know Epaphroditus was from Philippi in the church at Philippi. I tend to think he knew and was part of Acts 16 when the church was founded through the woman at the river named Lydia. He was probably familiar, aware of that, was probably part of it. He was in this church and this church sent him. And so Paul now is technically sending him back, verse 26, since he has been longing for all of you. And was distressed because you heard that he was sick. Now Paul begins to give us a little more uh, color on Epaphroditus' sickness. Verse 27. Indeed, he was so sick that he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but also on me. 
so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. For this reason, I am very eager. Connect that to the word necessary. You can begin to see Paul's posture of, of this is a must-do situation. I'm very eager to send him so that you may rejoice again when you see him and I may be less anxious. Therefore, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and hold people like him in honor because he came close to death. Would you underline those three words with me? Close to death for the work of Christ. Now read with me the next three words. Risking his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry to me. Six verses closing out this chapter in which Paul gives us four examples of selflessness. Can I share with you three observations that I think will help us arrive at what I think is the, the peak of our hike through this text? First of all, observation one, let's look at the selfless reasons he was sent. This is in the beginning portion of the paragraph. I actually should say more technically, let's look at the selfless reasons he was sent back. Because he was sent by the church to Paul. I'll say more about that later. And now Paul is saying, I want you to go back. And I want us to look at the selfless reasons that occurred. It's quite uh, intriguing. There are several reasons. First of all, his character. You see that in the list of descriptions. I'll address more of that next week when I take a week and just do a biographical sketch of Epaphroditus. That's next week. Also, we know that Paul would be less anxious if Epaphroditus went back. And he says the church would rejoice. This is in verse 28. But there is a primary main reason he was sent back. Look with me, verse 26. Because he has been longing for all of you and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. Paul felt it necessary to get Epaphroditus back to the church so that the church would not be overly worried, concerned, or distracted by news that he was sick. Apparently, all they had heard was that he contracted some kind of illness, injury, sickness. We don't know why. On his mission to Paul, and they had not received news that God had had mercy on him. So they're still thinking, man, we sent one of our own, and it's not going well. And they're overly concerned. They're, they're uh, distracted, perhaps. They're, 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 they're uh, worried. They're anxious. Now watch this. So Paul is sending Epaphroditus back because Epaphroditus longs for them not to be concerned. Now that's selflessness. When you're more concerned that someone's not overly concerned about you. Do you see it now? That's really why he went back. And you got to love a partner who even in their situation, that's difficult, tough. Paul will even say close to death. His concern is not himself. Epaphroditus in this moment is thinking, Paul, you got to send me back. <laughs> they don't know the whole story. They're probably distracted. They're not getting the work of the church done. Like we, we've got to help them. Don't worry about me. I mean, that is selflessness. When you're more concerned with someone who's overly concerned about you. So I just think it's somewhat humorous in one sense, but it's a beautiful part of the text in which we really see the selfless reason he was sent back. Now, Paul then says this, when he arrives, he's to receive a selfless reception. Notice this, verse 29. Paul encourages them to welcome him in the Lord 
with great joy and hold people like him in honor. Meaning, when he arrives back from the mission you sent him on, welcome him and honor him. I think the key word in this phrasing is the word, or I should say, there are the words in the Lord, which gives us this sense that when the Philippian church would receive Epaphroditus back, they're to receive him as if it were Christ himself. They, they were to welcome him in that way and, and experience great joy. And then they were to esteem him with great value. That's what it means to hold someone in honor. So what a wonderful reception this would be. Can you imagine Epaphroditus's joy in himself when he sees the church welcoming him back as if it were Christ himself and then holding him in honor and esteeming him of great value. And can I just say to you, the Bible here does say we're to hold people like him in great honor. So when our partners return for home visits, when they're with us in the short term time span from their work where they've left us to go in these different parts of the world for the sake of the gospel, and 80% of our partners are in places that are hard to access, their least reached areas, when they come back, can we just follow suit? Can we welcome them as if it were Jesus himself? And can we esteem them with great value? Can we do that? That's a great model here. The selfless reception he was to receive. But I want to spend most of my time on understanding why he was to receive this reception. And it's really the backstory for why he was to be sent back. Because the text is kind of building to this point where we see something about Epaphroditus. Why was he to be received this way? Why was he sent in the first place? Why was he sick? All this is leading to understanding the selfless risk he took. And this is why he was to receive a, a selfless, warm reception. This explains so much. This risk that Epaphroditus was known for. He's not mentioned much in the Bible. This is one of the verses he's mentioned. And it's a key verse about his life. It's in verse 30. Look what it says. They're to hold him in honor, welcome him with joy. Because he came close to death, that would be a word and a phrase hearkening back to why he was so sick. And he did this for the work of Christ. He came close to death for the work of Christ. And then he risked his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry for me. So let me just give you a little bit of the what and why here in perhaps like storytelling terms. It appears from the little we have about Epaphroditus that he was in the Philippian church and they needed someone to send Paul, or I should say to take to Paul a financial gift and to spend some time caring for his needs. It seems that Paul was at this point in Rome under house arrest. It's the end of Acts. He's probably there ministering, has some freedom to move around, but he's under supervision of the Roman guard. And so the Philippian church, which I believe, if you study the epistles, was probably his, can I use the word favorite church? That's probably not the right word. But he had a very deep relationship. They were the first to support. They were the ones who continued to support Paul. They were close partners. We've seen this in chapters one, part of chapter two. And so probably they're saying to themselves, who among us will go to Rome where Paul is. He has some freedom, but he's kind of under guard and take some money to help him, give a financial gift, and then stay a bit to care for his needs. So it appears that Paphroditus said, 
Here am I, send me. I'll go. And so he takes this journey, which is about an 800 to 1100 mile journey. In that culture, it would have been various modes of transportation, probably at least two to three months, maybe more. And don't forget, he's carrying what I think would be a large sum of money. So did he take the main roads, which in that culture probably meant robbers and bandits, or did he take some back roads to avoid the danger and the peril of being robbed? If he did, that's probably more arduous and more time. If he didn't, he has the um, the risk, of course, of, of being robbed and attacked. Was his illness just something natural? Was it because of persecution or maybe being beat up? Was it an injury? Was it chronic? We just don't know. All we know is that at some point when he said, I'll take the gift to Paul and I'll spend some time caring for his needs, he encountered a sickness, an illness that was so bad, he almost died. Paul here is not being hyperbolic, he's being clear and factual. Epaphroditus was on his deathbed in this mission of the church, this work of Christ to Paul. Somewhere in that moment when he was so close to death, God intervened and divinely healed him. That's what I think the text is meaning when it says, however, God had mercy on him. It seems to be a, a phrase that says to us, Something out of the ordinary, apart from human means, occurred so that he could finish the mission. I believe spiritually, God healed Epaphroditus because the mission mattered. He wasn't finished yet. And so in the middle of being close to death and this incredible risk over time and long distance, Epaphroditus does finish bringing Paul the gift and caring for him, which is why Paul says the end, he was able to fill up what was lacking from the church. Now, you may hear that like a negative phrase. All Paul is saying is this. You started out with the intention to send a gift and to care for me. It almost got interrupted with his close-to-death illness. But God had mercy, healed him, and he finished what would have been lacking from you. Does that make sense? In other words, it didn't fall short after all. Epaphroditus didn't quit. Satan didn't get the best of him. Perhaps that was a satanic attack, a, a demonic, uh, you know, um, attack on him. We don't know what happened, but something happened that brought him close to death, but God healed him. He stayed faithful, stayed true, finished the mission. He embraced the risk of this, of this opportunity and finished it. And so watch this. Paul was less anxious because he didn't die. Epaphroditus had joy because the church now was not overly concerned, but would actually know he was better. So in the end, this is one of those stories where everyone wins. Amen? And this is the story of Epaphroditus. And this is the selfless risk he took. He took it because he was vertically focused. He did exhibit horizontal actions. But he did it, as the text says, for the work of Christ. Those are the exact words in the text. Now, what I gather from that is this. I think you're meaning they're the work of Christ's church to, to be the kind of partner to those who are spreading the gospel that we need to be. It is a vertical relationship with Christ. I think there's some personal nature to it, like he loves Jesus. It's the work of Christ in his life. Yes, but I think there's probably a greater meaning that he's saying the work of Christ in the church to get the mission of God accomplished 
He was willing to risk his life for that. That's why he did what he did. So do you get a picture now of Epaphroditus? What he did, the risk he took, and why he did it. Now, as you think about that, as you ponder and meditate, kind of piece the puzzle pieces together in your mind, I want to take a minute, I think it'd be helpful here to just talk about risk in general for a bit. Talk about it definitionally, what it is, because it will help us kind of put this story into the framework of how we understand risk today. And then I want to move away from just definitionally and generally, and I want to kind of bring this to focus upon risk here at First Family for a bit. So let's talk just for a second or two about risk in general. And maybe you're not sure how to define risk. I think we all know what it is. We know it comes in various shapes and sizes. It lives on a spectrum. There's small risk. There's large risk. We all would admit that almost everything has some kind of risk. Some of us are more aversive to risk than others. Neither one's bad or better. We're just different, wired by God differently on purpose. Variety is a good thing. The church said amen. And so we don't need to criticize those who are risk aversive or necessarily magnify those who take crazy chances. Risk is just inherent to everything. And it lives on a spectrum. It's sometimes very small. Sometimes you ponder, oh, I think I'll do this. And then you think about a risk and you only wait seconds before you do it because it's a small risk. Other times you think about an opportunity, you think about some risks and you wait days. Every opportunity comes with risk. So I was thinking about how do I define this in words that maybe aren't used by Webster? Because you can go to Webster, get a definition. It's a good one. But here's kind of how I define risk. Can I share it with you? I see risk as the negative possibilities that exist around and within and even cloud positive opportunities. That's pretty plain language. I think you can follow that. If you wanted to boil it down to the bare bones definition, it's just negative possibilities, the what ifs that exist around and within positive opportunities. This is why I say, Almost every day you're making decisions about your positive opportunities in light of negative possibilities. And for some of you, you have the what if moment and it takes you seconds to say, oh, that's not, that, that's no big deal. Other times we'll wait days or weeks. But I would say every day we are making decisions based on the negative possibilities that exist around and within all of our positive opportunities. That's risk. Now, in the text, the word risk is associated with the work of the church, the Philippian church. So at some point, Epaphroditus must have assessed, okay, here's a positive opportunity, the mission of God to move forward, helping Paul financially getting a gift to him, caring for his needs. We got a long journey, danger, things could happen. But he assessed it and knew the positive opportunity was worth the negative possibilities. He even experienced some of them to the point of almost dying. But God healed him, had mercy on him, and he finished. So if you were to ask Epaphroditus, was the risk worth it? What would he say? Oh, he'd say, you bet. Yeah, a little quicker than you guys did, right? He would be all over it because he saw God work in his life. He saw the hand of God in his life. That makes us more apt to say yes to risk when we see God carrying us through it. So let's talk about risk then in our church here a little bit. 
There's risk in every single part of our strategy. I'm going to start at a pretty low-level understanding of it first. So I'll ask you this question first. Our strategy here is very simple. It's three words. What are they, church? We celebrate, grow, and we serve. We can expand that, talk more about it, but in this essential nature, that's what we do every single week. We celebrate, grow, and serve. Every single aspect of that strategy has some element of risk. For instance, we gather together to celebrate the gospel on a weekly basis. You invite others to join you. You're out sharing your faith, your uh, encouraging folks to join you at church. But you know that sometimes an invitation, and we're big on just inviting folks to church, but you know that sometimes an invitation to, to a large gathering with people they've never met, singing songs they don't know, and preaching things they probably feel really convicted about, they're like, uh, should I go to that? And they're thinking, I probably should, but what if, and they have all these what ifs come to mind. So I just say that to you because I want you to be aware to continue to be friendly, patient, kind, but keep inviting, but just realize what you think is easy, the person who's never been here may not think that way off the bat. They may see a large crowd of people that they don't know a little intimidating. So invite them to your home first or get to know them first on their turf, but keep inviting. Just realize there's risk even in how we celebrate and inviting people to it. There's also risk in small groups, which is our growing in community strategy. Um, not everyone loves a small, a large group. And the truth is not everyone loves a small group. Some folks love a large group because they can hide and not get, not get known. No one has to find any details about my life. And that's why I don't get in a small group, Todd, because I don't really want anybody to know me that well. Can I encourage you to take the risk of joining a small group? The greatest way to be loved and to love is to be known and to know. And that is risky. Over time to bare your soul and who you really are and where your struggles are and where your victories are and kind of how God's made you and the highs and lows. That's, that's hard over a period of years to just lay that out. But you know what? That's when you really begin to enjoy a spiritual faith family and a community. When people know everything about you and love you anyway. Is that risky? Now you're saying amen, aren't you? <laughs> it's true even with serving the mission. That's the third part of our strategy. For some of you, you know God's calling you to serve more both within the church formally, but also just informally in ways that advance the mission of God. And you think about, well, what's that going to do to my schedule? I'll have to cancel this or adjust this or stop that. I'll have to give more here, sacrifice there and you think about all the ways that suddenly serving the mission is going to impact you, and it's a risk. I'm not saying those risks aren't worth it. I would say they are, but I'm just simply showing you something. When you think about risk at the church, it is just common. Every part of our strategy that leans into the mission of God contains risk. So Epaphroditus' world is not a whole lot different than your world. We're always looking at positive opportunities that are surrounded by and contain negative possibilities. What Epaphroditus did in that moment was he said yes to the risk. Now, they think more about risk in our church. The one that I'm probably most acutely aware of is what I call the sending risk. 
you know, the last probably eight to 10 years, God has developed within this body a very multiplying type of culture. Um, and I love that about you. I love what God is doing and has been doing through his Holy Spirit in just making us a people ready to reproduce. You can see it happening because 10, 12 years ago, we kind of announced our first plant and it was like a church-wide conversation. When we announced Carlisle, it was like, well, of course we'll do that. That's what we do around here. And to see God just over eight to 10 years adjust our culture to where reproduction, multiplication, making disciples who make disciples is just what we do. Why wouldn't we do that? That's who we are. It's been a beautifully humbling thing to watch. As that has happened, God has called more and more of our people from these chairs to go to different places, some locally in church plants or campuses, some internationally to hard-to-reach areas. And that's hard. Would you say amen to that? It's hard to watch your small group members, your family members, your close friends begin to answer this call to multiply, to reproduce in other places as well. And so as I watch this, I'm, I'm acutely aware that there's a sending risk that's present in our church. Will we continue to embrace God's call to multiplication, knowing that it may mean this or that? And it's risky. Even within that, there's a specific current risk that I call the rural risk. That's hard to say three times fast, I promise. You know, even within our church planting efforts, our sending efforts, in the last three to four years, God has really given us a heart to see what could happen in rural areas of Iowa. Two-thirds of Iowa's counties only have towns of 5,000 or less. That's rural. Some of those counties have no stop light, only a stop sign. And we've been asking ourselves as elders, as leaders, how can the gospel penetrate these areas where there's minimal population, but there is high need? And so God has opened doors in several rural places through various connections to see if we could plant a campus. So our strategy is let's get autonomous churches in areas and let's get campuses in areas. Let's send partners to unreached places globally. And so we're not an either or, we're probably more like a both and kind of church when it comes to missions. So I was thinking through this rural risk. It seems to be the one that is most present in the current regarding just the sending risk and how we're looking at multiplying and reproducing and God's heartbeat within this body. And, and I just want to bring to you some opportunities in front of us. Here's what's going to happen. I'll kind of lay out before you some positive opportunities. Your mind will think of the negative possibilities as mine has. So I want us to weigh this together. But for instance, we are currently looking at planting an unofficial campus in Guttenberg this fall. We've talked about it. We were up there last Saturday doing some outreach. We've met some people. There's some key connections. We've got some people in place to host it. We're excited about it. But are there some negative possibilities? Sure there are. Uh, Guttenberg's a town of, what, 1,200? It's on the river, northeast Iowa, uh, different culture. But man, we see some connections and some opportunities. We're excited to walk through the open door, even with the risk. Uh, we got a call this week from a church we've been working with in Lamoni. Lamoni is a pretty rural town, right on the freeway, 35 going south. We've been working with them for several years, just helping them. Um, but their main deacon who was holding everything together, I think it's a church of like maybe 12 people, 20. And they uh, 
she said, my husband passed away and we were aware of that. And she goes, well, we're kind of regrouping and we know that what's next is a takeover. I said, Linda, no one's going to take your church over. She's, well, it's either takeover or death. I said, well, let's see if we can help. So I think their eyes are like, could this be a campus of First Family Lamoni? Because if it's not that, we don't know how we're going to survive. You know, Elkhorn's a possibility. We have a connection there, one person. We have a building there that we don't own, but we know we can use. Um, Granger, we got a family moving to Granger. They've talked about, hey, we, is there a, a possibility of maybe planting a campus in Granger? It's a good drive. It's not real far away, but it's kind of still a good drive. Uh, what do you think, Todd? The elders, could that be something we do? We've looked at Alleman, which is just really now North Ankeny almost, isn't it? Um, uh, next year in 24, we hope to plant in Clorinda. Jason Gibson is in a residency currently. He and his family, his wife's from there. And so there's been some connections made there. Uh, we look, looks like that's going to happen next, uh, next year, Lord willing, in the fall. So these are opportunities. And here's what I want you to hear. When you think about those opportunities, Guttenberg, Lamoni, uh, Leon is another one, which is just a little northern uh, which is just north of Leon, of Lamoni. But we've been talking to one of the guys there in their church. And again, it's the same situation. Many of these rural towns, the churches are, are just a hair's breadth away from dying. And for whatever reason, we think it's divinely ordained. God has put us in connection with them. For some reason, this is how what happened in Carlisle. They called and said, we're uh, without a pastor. We're not sure what to do. We just said, we'll help you find a pastor. Well, we were 0 for 3 on that. After a year, they said, can we just be part of you guys? We just prayed about that and said, sure. And that's how that occurred. Carlisle's not really rural, but it is smaller. So that's happening in multiple places. Guttenberg, Lamoni, Leon, possibly, Elkhorn, Clorinda. So as we look at these opportunities, you may say, okay, what's needed there? We've got logistical details. What's the risk with that? We've got financial details. What's the risk there? Here's what's needed for all of that to work out. You ready? Epaphroditus's. People willing to embrace risk. That's what's needed. Without people, without a person, without an Epaphroditus, the financial, logistical, even the relational risk, even the opportunities. They just exist. It's when someone steps up and says, I'll go. I'll do that. For the work of Christ. Man, that's when, that's when things happen. So what am I asking for today? In a very plain way, I'm asking, where are more Epaphroditus's in our church? Now, before you say, you want me to quit my job and move to Lamoni and work for nothing? That's not what I'm saying. I'm not trying to get more church employees. That's not, that's not the goal. I'm trying to continue what God is doing in this church. I'm trying to help you to continue to see God uses us in all kinds of occupations, in all kinds of ways for his mission. Does that make sense? It could look like a retired pastor who's now attending here, but his weekends are free. He's not working. 
he's pretty much able to live on his retirement. And, but he's like, well, I've got some free weekends. I'll, I'll go down to Lamona every week for a year and I'll train some local leadership or I'll drive to Guttenberg every week for a year. Maybe it's a retired pastor and his wife and they want to move to one of these places for a year, maybe two years. Train some local leadership to where they can shepherd these smaller communities. Maybe it's a young couple. They don't have kids yet. He works remotely. She works remotely. And they say, Todd, we can log on from Lamoni like we can log on from Ankeny or Des Moines. So yeah, we'll go to Lamoni. Maybe we'll just move there for good. Maybe we'll go to Guttenberg, Elkhorn. We'll go to Clorinda. We'll join Jason and his team. We can work remotely from anywhere. So we'll work remotely. We'll be strategic with our location for the mission of God. It won't hurt our income at all. Uh, maybe it's a family with kids. They're looking for a smaller community. You hear that a lot in Ankeny. It's getting too big. I need to find me a smaller place, right? Well, I've got some small places for you. <laughs> Would you be willing to move strategically for the mission of God at the same time maybe find that smaller community that you're looking for? Just a thought. I mean, there's all kinds of ways this can look. Here's what I'm saying, that risk-taking, embracing risk is part of living for the mission of God. This is what Epaphroditus did. And I'm just going to put this out to you plainly and boldly and clearly. I'm praying God will give us more Epaphroditus's who in some way will say, I'm not sure how God will do it, but I'm here, I'll go, I'll help. What's the risk? While you're thinking of that, I want you to hear the story of one young man who did this about two weeks ago. Brady, will you join me on the platform looking for Brady Miller? Great. Mike's right there. Join me here in the middle. I want you to hear Brady's story. He got back from camp, oh, two weeks ago. He got back on a Saturday. He talked to his parents. Sunday morning, he was beaming. He came up and he said, Todd, we got to talk this week. I said, well, tomorrow I'm good for Mexican. Are you? He goes, yes, over tacos, chips and salsa. We sat down on Monday and he shared with me some things that God did in his life while at camp, and they involve risk-taking and what he's going to lean his life against. So, Brady, take it from here, buddy, and share with your church family what God's doing in your life. Yeah, like Todd said, two weeks ago, I was pretty eager to talk to him, and I can't turn, uh, you know, turn down Mexican, so. Um, but, no, it started before we went to camp. Um, I was kind of on the verge of going, just, you know, starting my new chapter in life with college, and, I'm, you know, I'm going to go play college football, too, so it's just like, do I want to take a week off? But ultimately, you know, I felt God pushing me to go because um, I had a lot of changes in my life the year before. And I was like, you know, let's go have some more changes. So um, we got there Sunday night and, and I just, you know, I felt something like tugging on my heart. Like I didn't know what it was, couldn't explain it, but just something I felt moving in me. And it was like that throughout the week. And it really hit me Thursday night when we wrapped up our sermon in the, you know, the pastor called us up and, you know, he's like, if you feel moved, just come up and, you know, just pray to God. And, you know, I got down on my hands and knees and I was just praying like, God, I, I feel you doing something in my life. I don't know what it is, but just, just reveal it to me. And it was just a feeling that like, I've never felt before, just super overwhelmed. And, you know, I could tell God was moving to me in a lot of different ways. Um, so we fast forward to Friday night, um, big chapel is what they call it. So they have all the groups come together and there's 700 plus kids just in the chapel. And um, he was talking, you know, the pastor was talking about you know, not being complacent with our Christian lives, but going out and being world changers. And he gave examples of, you know, uh, Billy Graham, Jim Elliott, guys who went out and changed the world um, with their skills or their gifts that God gave them. And that's when it really hit me that 
I want to serve the Lord and I want to go into ministry. Um, so, you know, I thought about it, you know, prayed a lot. And then um, what they have is called Glory Bowl on Friday night. And it's just everyone there. And if you feel called to speak, you can just go out, grab the microphone, get about a couple minutes and you just get to talk. And I kind of shared, you know, like I am right now, what God had been doing in my life. And um, Matthew 28, 19 stuck with me that uh, week. And, you know, just God calls us to go out to all the nations, creating disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's what I felt called to do because um, ultimately... I'm tired of living the, you know, complacent Christian life, and I want to use my skills that God's given me to better the gospel for the world. Amen, buddy. Amen. Amen. Hey, I'm proud of you. Um, I'm proud of you for getting your yes out there. Who knows what God's going to do, right? Um, but getting your yes on the table and willing to voice it before your faith family. You know, Brady is the first boy born in our church. Eric Intrigan was the second. <laughs> They're both still here. Their parents serve selflessly. And I think it's very fitting, man, that you want to say, man, I'm, I'm willing to give my life to gospel ministry. So how that fleshes out, we'll see. But we will go from one green light to the next with you. Yeah. And I'm proud of you and thank yeah. God for thank you. you. Thank Amen. You. you praise the Lord on Brady's behalf. Thanks, buddy. Can I see that mic? Brady, can I see that mic? Because I'm convinced Brady's not alone. In fact, I know he's not. I've talked to some of the young men and women in our church. I've talked to some of our adults. You know, God's called three or four current families, put them in the sending pipeline for international missions. They're still in that pipeline in different places, seeing where they're going to go, if they go, what they're going to do. I don't think Brady's alone. And so I'm going to do something this morning. If you're here and you want to humbly and succinctly say, my yes is on the table too. Like, I'll confess to my faith family. I'll just put my name out there that I'm, I'm willing to embrace risk. I just want to give you an opportunity. I'm only going to wait a few seconds, but if that's you, join me up at the front. I'll let you share with your church family what you sense God calling you to in regards to embracing a life of risk and what may be your next steps. Anyone at all? Just want to give you the opportunity. Five, four, three, two. Okay, we got two here. Oh, great. Okay. I'm going to let ladies go first. Okay, Caleb? Lana, come up here, would you? This is Lana Walker. Travis is her father, so a lot of you know her. Lana, feel free to share, would you? Humbly, succinctly, and clearly. It'd be great. Okay, so um, I want to go and be a missionary, and I'm not sure, like, where that is or what that looks like, but I'm planning on going to Midwestern Seminary in Spurgeon College in Kansas City next year, and, yeah, I'm pumped for that. So, yeah. Amen. We are too. Amen. Caleb. Uh, so uh, mine started at camp. I, I decided that I wanted to do something for God. Uh, Ken Rudolph was talking about uh, our passion for God and uh, how we have the answer for the world and why aren't we speaking it. And so I, I swear literally every time he spoke something about that, my heart burned and then it kind of just faded away. And then he'd say something and it was like... <sighs> Like that every single time, and I was like, okay, so that's that's what I'm supposed to do, I guess. <laughs> and so, um, um, and so, yeah, that's, that's what I, I want to do something for God with my life. I want to I want to build His kingdom, and I don't really know what that is, but I'm excited to see what He has in store for me. So, and you just returned from a family mission trip to Somaliland, right? Yes, before uh, camp. Before camp, you yeah. Did the double whammy on you. I did double whammy, yeah. <laughs> you did. Thank you, Caleb. Yeah, Lana, thank you. Amen. That's great. 
so listen to this church family. Those two, those three, perhaps they're saying they sense God calling to vocational ministry. And God does that. They're those he sets apart. That's kind of their, can I use the word career here in the right sense of the word? But God calls all of us to lean our life against the wall of the Great Commission. So it's not more sacred to earn your money through a vocational ministry than to be a doctor or a banker or a teacher or a mechanic. It's just a different occupation. Are you with me? That's why those three spoke to that area of vocational ministry. But all of us are called to serve God and make the Great Commission the priority of our life in some way, no matter what our occupation is. And I suspect that means no matter what your occupation is, it will involve some additional risk. And will you be an Epaphroditus? You may not answer the call to vocational ministry. In fact, many of you shouldn't. We need really good, godly occupationists, don't we, in all kinds of realms. Banking, teaching, name your occupation. We need those. But those very people need to be consumed with the Great Commission as well. This is God's mission. To see the gospel go to every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. And that is not without risk. Whether it's campuses in rural places, church plants in cities in Iowa, partners in unreached places around the globe. I'm asking God to raise up more Epaphroditus who will embrace risk for the work of Christ. So as you're processing all that, as your heart is no doubt pumping and about to beat out of your chest and rejoicing, let's sum all this up into a single sentence. Here's six verses in the simplest way I can make it. Our take-home truth. This really is the punch of the passage. This is really the, the, the apex of the text. This is what it's saying to us. That the mission of God calls for partners like Epaphroditus who embrace necessary risk. So I don't know where you are on that spectrum, on that journey. These three shared with you where they are. Hallelujah. Where are you? Here's what I want to ask you to do. Get your yes on the table. It'll be different than theirs or the person beside you. But we've all got a yes that we should give to God. And I want to challenge you to get your yes on the table. At our Carlisle campus, talk to Ethan. Here in this campus, talk to your elders, prayer team members. Or use the feedback card. It's right in the back of the chair in front of you. Pull that out. Just jot your name. Say, my yes is on the table. I'm embracing risk. What's next? Put your name, a contact number. We'll talk. Conversation and, and, and walking together through this. One green light at a time is the way to go about it. And you are among a faith family. You're with elders and deacons and small group leaders and ministry directors who will walk with you one green light at a time. Embracing risk and positive opportunities, even with negative possibilities, so that your life is more and more about God's mission. So will you read this together with me? The mission of God calls for partners like Epaphroditus who embrace necessary risk. And I'm asking you to be one of those risk takers and let us know so that we together can see more done for the mission of God.
Now, with, I know what your mind is thinking. You're thinking, okay, Todd wants me to be a little E, a little Epaphroditus. I don't. That'll last about a week, maybe a month. Instead, I, I want you to model the one that actually is greater than and deeper than and higher than the model of Epaphroditus. I want to elevate your view just for one more minute to see that it's really not Epaphroditus you should try to emulate. Why do I say that? Because of a very interesting phrase in this text used about Epaphroditus that comes eerily close to one used about Christ in the beginning of the chapter. I think they're intentional bookends by Paul. It's the phrase close to death in verse 30. You can look at it again. I had you underlined it, remember? That's how he risked his life. But I don't want you worshiping someone who risked their life. I want you worshiping the one who gave his life. That's the phrase used in verse 8 about Jesus. And they're very similar in their wording and instruction. And I think Paul, as he closes Philippians 2, intentionally says this about Epaphroditus to remind them, he's a good model, he's a good man, but he only came close to death. Don't forget, Jesus became obedient to death even death on a cross. And Epaphroditus' example flows out of the supreme essence of an example of selflessness, Jesus Christ, just like Paul's does and just like Timothy's does. And all of your fuel for living this way, for living strategically and riskily and selflessly, all of that fuel is found in Jesus and the gospel that he gave his life for you. He hung on the cross and was raised from the dead to satisfy God's wrath against your sin. Now God offers eternal life and forgiveness to anyone who would believe in him. That's the one I want you to worship. Do I want you to act like Epaphroditus? Sure, but don't adore him, adore Jesus. Because Epaphroditus only came close to death. He only risked his life. Jesus gave his life. He became obedient to death on the cross so that you could risk yours for him. I am stunned by that. I love the Bible and the scriptures. Don't you love the way God just continually in every single chapter points us to Jesus? So this morning, yeah, let's be stirred by Epaphroditus. But let's aim to be like Jesus. And let's let his life fill us so that we can live selflessly, strategically, and riskily beyond a week or a month, but for the rest of our lives, for the mission of God. So join me, church, would you? In worshiping Jesus, in unashamedly adoring him now, and asking him to fill our hearts and souls and minds with the fuel, the high-octane fuel of the gospel, so that we leave here willing to be partners like Epaphroditus, empowered by Jesus, willing to risk it for the sake of the gospel and the work of Christ.